The Devil's Snicker Strategy. That was the second lecture at our first annual Austin Creation Society meeting we had on November the 5th, 2022, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Dr. Heck was lecturing. You can find all those lectures from Dr. Heck and his slideshow on the website, wolfmuller.co. Search for Creation Society. You can find all that there. Uh, here's my lecture, though, the second one about the devil's snicker strategy, how the devil doesn't attack the arguments. He just laughs at us for making them. Hope you enjoy it. Keep in touch. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit so that we would rejoice in your word. We pray that you would give us courage and wisdom uh, to rejoice in your gift of creation. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to maintain the distinctions that you've created and also to resist the temptation to separate those things that you've joined together, that we might rejoice in uh, the gift of being uh, your creatures. For we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. We talked a little bit this morning about the overwhelming the kind of confusion of, uh, of the, some of the cultural fights that we're in. It's tricky. We talked about bringing clarity by recognizing that the devil only attacks and tears down. So we want to recognize what's being attacked, and then we can see it. We can, we can start to see clearly what the devil's attacking. We looked at Romans 8, and I, I just want to highlight this for you. Sorry, Romans 1. I want to highlight this for you again, that there was two mistakes that the pagan mind makes when it comes to confessing God. So if you have the handout from this morning, it's in verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not, one, glorify him as God, honor, give glory, nor were they thankful. So those are the two marks of the pagan mind, of the unbelieving mind, that God is dishonored, and it then results in a thanklessness. A thanklessness. It's also, Paul reminds us in, in Ephesians, it's a, the pagan mind is also marked with a hopelessness. Now, now, I, I want this to sink in to us both as law and gospel, but number one, we as Christians are called to be thankful in all circumstances, to be thankful. And that thankfulness is a is actually a way that the Lord protects both our minds and our hearts. So that the unbeliever who didn't honor God and who also was not thankful, the result is a futility of mind and a darkness of heart. So we, we can say, this is not the logical conclusion, but the theological conclusion is that thankfulness brings a clarity of mind and also a cleanliness of heart. There's so much that's involved in thankfulness. There, thankfulness is, is, like the, is like the joyful way of saying repentance. Repentance is how we changed our mind according to our sins, according to the bad stuff. But thankfulness is how we change our mind according to the good things. So remember that thankfulness has so many presuppositions. Number one, well, okay, just to contrast it, and I'll maybe be just personal on this, 
that whenever I wake up, I, I'm, I think all of us, but I, I would say, I think I particularly have a, uh, I'm tempted away from thankfulness. I don't, and here's, and here's what it, why, how it looks. Is I wake up in the morning and the thing that's on my mind is all of the things that are undone that are there for me to do that day. Probably none of you are like that, just me. <laughs> but I think all the things, all the things. And so I'm thinking about what? First of all, I'm thinking about the future. Second of all, I'm thinking about the unfinished. And third of all, I'm thinking about myself. So future unfinished me. Thankfulness reverses all of those. If I'm thankful, I'm thinking about the past finished God. <laughs> the things that the Lord has already accomplished. And so it reorients us from instead of being obsessed with what's next to being to being content with what was. It, it, it reorients us from the undone to the complete. And it reorients us from ourself to God. That's a lot, actually. Just in thankfulness, that's a lot that's happening. But if we don't have that sort of, if, if our mind is not reshaped by thankfulness, then we become stuck on the unfinished future self. And that is where all sorts of demons can play. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, that, that, that they, they did not give thanks to God, and so it opens you up to all sorts of temptations, both of mind and of heart, futile mind, darkened heart. And we see all these things that unfold that, from that. Now, how phenomenal. I mean, we're sitting here trying to figure out, like, again, how did the culture get to the way it is? What, what are we supposed to think about the, uh, the, all these different revolutions and morality that are happening around us? How are we supposed to deal with the rejection of creation and all this? But what's the Lord's, what's the Lord's solution? Is the same thing that your mom told you. Say thank you. <laughs> In fact, I, my mom told me, what are the magic words? Please and thank you. That's true. Please is an attitude of humility. It's a prayer, prayer for mercy. And thank you is a recognition of the good things that God has done. And this is how we are. Please and thank you. Lord have mercy. Glory be to God on high. I mean, that's how the liturgy starts actually, right? A please and a thank you. The Kyrie and the Gloria. <laughs> so, that th but so that thank you, let, let us not... Let us not overlook the importance of that and the joyful simplicity of that. Pastor, what are we supposed to do when the world is falling apart around us? Give thanks to God for the gifts of creation. Wow. It's pretty simple. Okay. Now let's move on to this next sheet and we're just going to fill in some blanks and then we are going to stop. Uh, I do not like to think about uh, things in terms of worldview, because I don't like that word worldview, but I just do not have a better word yet for worldview. Uh, Carl Truman has suggested the term social imaginary. The old theologians used to talk about a, a practical philosophy, but a worldview is basically the way that you see the world. And here, let's think of it this way. Everybody sees themselves as part of a story. And in fact, we can be more specific, everybody sees themselves as part of a story with four chapters. The beginning, the problem, the solution, and the end. Every worldview then is going to answer those four questions. How did things start? How did things go wrong? How do things or how did things get fixed? And where are things going to end? 
Now, this is where we talk about our Christian worldview. So you see, the, you see a chart there, right, on your page. So Christianity has four chapters. What are those chapters? How did things get here? In the beginning, God created the world. If you want to just put creation, you can put creation. How did things start? God created them. And so beautifully, every, every culture, every people, every mythology has a story of how things got here. Most of the stories involve some god cutting something in half with a sword. <laughs> Most creation stories and creation mythologies are violent, including our culture's creation story, which is an explosion. That's an amazing thing, isn't it, to contrast those two things. Christianity has a creation, and, and, the, and the thing that happens, is there's no violence at all. It's peaceful beginning to start to finish. There's no opposition to God. He stands alone, and He speaks, and out of nothing there is, and it's good, and He looks at it, and it's good. It's just a beautiful, peaceful uh, uh, origin. And, but the world, how does the world say that there was a, I mean, the creation story of the world, it was an explosion, the Big Bang, evolution, so forth. That's their beginning origin story. Just to contrast those two, because we draw our purpose and meaning in life from these four chapters, these four stories, or these four parts of the story. We draw our purpose and meaning in life. We draw our understanding of what's good and what's bad. We draw the, all of these things from these four parts of the story, and, and that's going to mean that every single part is going to have, a, is gonna have an, uh, uh, an impact, a practical impact. All right, let's just go through the, so the Christian story. So, things were started by God creating the world. How was the world created? Can you imagine anything more beautiful? The world was a garden. The whole world was a garden in which there was life. In fact, when the Lord says it's good, what does it mean? It either is or supports life. It's full, and there's this, there's this kind of overflowing fullness. Like you, you get the sense when you're reading the uh, the, the account of uh, creation in Genesis that the sea is not just that it's it's like there's so, fish are just jumping all over the place, and the birds and the, the sky is full of birds. It's just there's this fullness of life. We see these paintings of the garden, and it's there's animals everywhere. It's just this full. It's beautiful. What's the trouble? What is Christianity? What is our, our story? And understand, when I say story here, I don't mean fiction. It's a true story. It's a history. But what does our Christian story say the trouble came? The fall. The fall into sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. You can just put the fall if you want. The whole story is there. I told Dr. Heck my, the only good joke I ever made is this one, which I'll tell now. Be prepared for hilarity. In fact, you probably cannot prepare yourself for the hilarity of this joke, even if you've heard it before. Because I had tell, what's that? I haven't told it to anyone. Well, I, no, I've told it to everybody who will listen. <laughs> Adam and Eve in the garden, they fall, they go, they hide behind, the, they make the fig leaf closes, the clothes, right? And then they come out in the garden, and then Adam, Eve looks at Adam, and she says, how do I look? These are my fall colors. <laughs> Ah, see, there's some of you who haven't heard it, and you yeah, that's actually funny, isn't it? I know you didn't even believe me this far. The fall. 
Thank you. Uh, the solution. What's the solution? The cross. Let's just say the cross, can we? The death and resurrection of Jesus. The solution is that God sends a Savior. And here's one of the, I mean, there's so much here. We could spend all day thinking about this, all our lives thinking about this. But how about this? The solution to the problem is not you. The solution is outside of you. The solution is a Savior who comes to you. And what's the culmination or what's the last chapter? The garden. <laughs> Back to the garden. The resurrection, the last day, the judgment. In fact, how about this? The end of history is what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. So the end is the beginning. <laughs> this is so great. The, 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 the uh, last two chapters that Dr. Heck was talking about of the Bible talk about a garden city now. The whole creation is this beautiful garden city, and we're there. There's no more weeping or crying or, or, or sickness or death. There's no more temptation. There's no more devil. It's all in the lake of fire. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Now, each point, each chapter, each section of our story that we're living in impacts the way that we think about things, the way we interact with one another, the way we think of, the, of one another. In fact, how about this? The way I think about you and the way you think about me is, is, is drawn from each of these four stories, that each person is created in the image of God, that each person is a sinner, that each person has been died for by Jesus, and that every single person will be raised on the last day and will stand before the Lord in judgment. So that each of these four chapters not only has to do with how I think about myself, but how I think about you and how I act toward you. Okay? How we live together. All of this. Now, the, 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 our Christian worldview is always in competition with other worldviews. Remember, the altar is the argument. So that Christianity says, hey, this is our understanding of the world, the way that goes, the four chapters of, of the story. But everyone else has a different story. And one of the things that we find is that in every generation, we're competing with different worldviews. We're competing with different stories. One of the ways to think about comparative religions is we can say, well, what's the Jewish story? What's the Hindu story? What's the Buddhist story? What's the Muslim story? What's the secular story? What's our own culture's story? And then we can understand actually what, what, what the competition is, what, what the argument is. It's not a competition like like a race or something like this, but there's a, there's a, the, the, uh, these different stories are competing for hearts and minds. This is why, for example, media is so important. This is why art is so important, because art is going to be a manifestation of these particular stories that are going on. So what's our own cultural story? How did things start? Now you can look at this in a number of different ways, but we're thinking about evolution today. So what's the start of everything? The Big Bang. An explosion. That's what I had in my notes. An explosion. That's a crazy way to things, for things to start. And we can just contrast those two, the explosion versus the let there be, and see what a difference we're looking at. What, what, what is the difference between a person who thinks that the reason I am is because God spoke versus the person who thinks the reason I am is because boom, I mean, that's a, that's a huge difference. Yeah, Jordan? What's that? 
We, well, that's a big one, right? How can you give thanks for, how can you give thanks to an explosion? Fourth of July, that's right. <laughs> the bombs bursting in air. That's a, probably a different kind of explosion. Now, what does our culture say is the cause of trouble? Now, I had about 12 different answers when I was filling that out. And this, tell, this will tell you a lot about person, but what do you have? Well, how, how do you want to fill in that blank? Yeah, Shelly? You are the problem? Wait, yeah. me? Yeah, everybody else. Oh, oh. Yeah, the problem is out there. That, that's the Pharisee, that's the Phariseeism. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like, so I see the problems and everything else but me. And this is always the Pharisee move, right? I exalt myself and I despise the other, and I'm making that argument. That's right. Pastor Camp says wokeness. Yeah, not woke. You're not, all, not woke enough. Critical theory has this idea. that, And, and this comes out of, if you're, if you're paying attention to the argument that Carl Truman is making, which I think is helpful, he's saying that, that our tendency today is to see the problem as not as individual but as systemic. So that the, the reason, so this goes back to Rousseau, and the idea coming out of the Enlightenment is that we basically are good, but culture makes us bad. The idea of the noble savage, right? If we were more connected to nature, we would be holier, but civilization is a corrupting influence. And then you can see the different corrupting influences in, in, in civilization. Like, like critical theory will identify a couple of different things. You can have critical race theory. So the essential problem is that there's a racial injustice. Or you could have just kind of clear, critical theory in Marxism that says that communism, or, or sorry, that capital is the major problem. So critical theories, and so you have systemic problems. And if the, and the, if the problem is systemic, what's the solution? Change the system, reshape society. Almost all of the solutions are going to be utopian. I'll give you a hint. Now, especially, almost all of the solutions are going to be political. Who's fixing the problem is me, us, humanity. I saw another for problems. What are some of the other problems that people identify? Jordan? I was going to say we need to start a new theory called critical sin theory. <laughs> critical sin theory. That's right, because we recognize the problem, in fact, is us. The problem is, the problem is me. Uh, the line of right and wrong runs, this is uh, the, that famous line from uh, Solzhenitsyn, the line, the, the, the line of good and evil runs through each individual heart. Uh, that's the line that we drew earlier. Yes, sir. Enemies us, right. That's a, uh, that's a little bit better than saying I've met the enemy and the enemy is you. <laughs> enemy is me, in fact, we say. Yeah, Steve? Yes, this is right. Environmentalism says that the problem is uh, emissions, carbon emissions. That, that you recognize that as a worldview, as a story. What's the story? Nature was created clean and pristine. Humanity came along, and through, the, and through the Industrial Revolution, we started destroying the environment. And then what's the solution? Carbon credits, whatever. Electric cars. It's not a, a non-Musk electric cars now. 
because uh, he's on the wrong side of that deal. Uh, you, but you see that you see how that works, right? Here's the problem: is nature was pristine. Now the uh, sorry the the, uh, the origin that we humanity's the problem. Now we have to have political solutions to fix environmentalism. They're, they're correct. Nature was pristine before the fall. Yep, <laughs> that's right. That's right. There, so there is a truth to it. There is a truth to it. Although what we do not confess is a we do not confess a uh, fragile environment. We confess a robust environment as part of our doctrine of creation. That doesn't mean we should wreck it. We're, we're called by God to be stewards of this world. Gardeners. Adam and Eve are, and all the children of Adam and Eve are, are, are to be gardeners. A garden, gardener doesn't, uh, you know, trample on his own garden. But that's different, right, than seeing that humanity is a problem. In fact, we have for the last 50 years probably been, and there's a, there's a we don't want to be conspiratorial, but there's been a strain of thinking that has just kind of gone through a lot of the elites, which is that, that we're on a track for over, overpopulation. It is an understanding that too many people is a burden on the environment and that the solution is to have less people. You probably don't want to put people who think that people are the problem in charge of people. <laughs> that, so this should be one of these fundamental political questions that we ask people. Do you think that people are the problem? And if so, you are not qualified for political office. <laughs> yeah, yes, Pastor Camp. Yeah. There is an understand. There isn't. I mean, you can find this. Uh, that just. I mean, you don't have to scratch the, that hard to find the idea. This understanding that humanity is a virus. It shows up in the movies all the time. We were watching Age of Ultron last night, and when I say we, I mean I, <laughs> because it started as all the family, and by the end of the movie, I looked around and the children were gone, and Carrie was asleep, and I. Was, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. These are all good things because they reduce population. Uh, so environmentalism is a problem. I've got that. Environmentalism, and then you have... Uh, what, uh, what's another problem? Yeah? Religion is a problem. Why is religion a problem? You're not supposed to care that much about anything. And I would say that a non, that this is the basic understanding that a non-secular worldview is a problem because, because if someone is religious, then that means that the Lord, whoever would be Lord has to have a Lord. And that's the problem. For those who would make, and let's make this argument, that the solution for all of these problems, and I don't think it has to be this way, but it seems like it is this way for us, the solution to all of the problems is politics, government, or whatever. Uh, it's, a, it's a, 
There's a political solution that's presented for all of these problems. And here, and here is the trouble, is that we recognize that it, there are things that are pre-political, sub-political, and hyper-political. In other words, that the state is only one of the three estates, that the family and the church exist as true realities created by God, and that the Lord is Lord of all of them. This is why it's so important that Jesus gives himself the title, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and the president of presidents and the boss of bosses. So, because whoever would be over also has someone over them. So if there's those, this is this natural human thing to, uh, to try to stand above everything. And th then there's no accountability for those who are at the top. This is why secularism is so dangerous. Because who will judge the judge? It's one of the things in the martyrs that is so... What's that? Yeah, fact checkers. <laughs> the fact checkers, the media. Uh, Jesus is the reporter of reporters. <laughs> He's the one that stands above them all so that there's accountability. But it's an amazing sort of thing that the solution is always a political solution and that it's always found in us. We see the danger. And then let's just do the last one. How, does th how do things end? Explosion. The sun explodes. Right? The sun explodes. Or the, what is it where everything is just the heat death? Which is this point, right? This is, this is why this Dawkins quote that Dr. Heck shared with us earlier, he says, look, if I'm good or I'm bad, I'm eventually just a, 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 like a, a, a butter spread of molecules over the surface of the universe. What does it matter? What does it matter? There is no matter if everything is matter, I just accidentally made a pun. <laughs> it doesn't, there's no meaning if everything is just atoms and it all is, spreads out. Uh, uh, Brian, I think, first, was first. Was that right? I just, having that the, the view of nothing matters, why are they still living? Great like, question. Like, this is a good question. Can I? Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. I was talking to someone, and we were just making this point that there's no meaning or purpose. There's very limited purpose, but there's no meaning if you have a secular worldview. And I was talking to a family, secular worldviews, kind of self-professed. And I made this point, and they said, that's why we have to pretend like there's meaning, or else... Oh, I was talking to a guy, he says, I just have to pretend like there's meaning, or else I'd kill myself. So you have to... You, you have to you have to kind of engage in a philosophical delusion just to keep going. But there's an, there's a impulse in, there's an impulse in life for, in each one of us, which, which we should thank God for. So that the nihilist is inconsistent, God be praised. Yeah. Alexis? Well, I think it's also a fallacy that we're getting better. Yeah, right, right. Right. And so that why there's this hope through politics because there isn't that Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. We're pressing towards a political utopian society. It's evolutionism applied to politics. I thought Dr. Heck might have a slide on that because it was evolutionism applied to Bible study, evolutionism applied to a couple others. Evolution applied to politics becomes progressivism. But we have to be careful that it's so, you know, this idea that everything's getting slowly better, 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 better. We have to kind of bring about the change and the revolution. We, if you, on the other side, we are tempted to like an anti-evolution that just says everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and we, we, so we, we are tempted to sort of a pessimistic view of evolution and, uh, and a pessimistic evolutionary view of human society. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. No, I mean, we just read Chronicles and it's like, it's good today and it's bad tomorrow and it's better today. It's just back and forth. It's just, this is how, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars all the way to the end. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right, there's a, there's a growing despair in the world and especially with young people and and suicide is understood as a as a solution because what is it, you know, what there's nothing to be there's nothing to be afraid of because death is nothing. I mean, I'm just going to embrace the nothing. Right? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, we got a lot of questions. You guys, I thought we were going to be done by now. <laughs> there is no, that's right. Yeah, there's the end. G.K. Chesterton talked about, the, he talked about the end like this, and he talked about suicide like this. He said, suicide is not just the murder of self, it's the murder of the universe. Because I'm not just ending me, I'm ending everything. I'm ending existence itself. So he talked about suicide as an act of, how did he say it? Universicide or something like that. Cosmicide. I'm killing everything. It's such an act of despair. I'm going to stand up and murder I'm going to murder, I'm going to murder is. I'm going to murder being itself. Whew. It says, uh, but that's, that's what happens. I mean, this is what, you know, this is how Nietzsche talks about the madman, right? Who, how, who, who can drink up the sea? Who can, we murdered God. Who could do such a thing? Unchain the earth from the sun. Whew. Okay, can we press on a little bit and then we'll come back? Is that all right? I just want to, I want, look, if we don't fill in these next four blanks, you guys will have nightmares. <laughs> so just, to, I'm just, so, so worldview, we have these contrasting stories and here's the thing, this is why this matters, right? This is why, why would we come to, on, to church to talk about creation for four or five hours on a Saturday? Well, because these, these, this is the, there's a, there's a, there's a fundamental profundity uh, and, and, uh, and practicality to our confession. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, now, uh, the thing that I want to press onto is why is it so difficult for us to say that? And I, and I noticed early on that there's a tactic that the devil uses, and that's not that he argues against us, but that he just jeers at us. There's a, it's a devil snicker strategy, and it goes like this. You say, well, I, oh, oh, you believe in six days of creation? Oh, pfft. You know, kind of... <laughs> Well, that, well, is not an argument, but it actually is particularly effective. 
There's a mockery. Now, why is it effective? This is why I want to get into the why, because there's things that shape our conscience. Now, recognizing that we're created by God with a conscience, that that conscience is that part of our inner life that is observing the things that are happening, both externally and internally, and making a moral judgment on them. So the conscience is generally accusing or excusing, but it's observing and making a judgment. The conscience is like a home plate umpire. It's not part of the game, but it is part of the game, right? Uh, we're all thinking about baseball, aren't we? So the home plate umpire, if the ball hits the umpire, it's a dead ball. Play stops, right? The umpire is not supposed to influence the game, and yet the umpire has a profound influence on the game, and especially the home plate umpire who sits there and says, ball and strike, he's making a judgment, and sometimes he's right. <laughs> but sometimes he's wrong. Now this is important. You have a conscience that's making those judgments, and sometimes it's right. But the conscience is also part of your fallen nature, and sometimes it's wrong. And your conscience is open to influence. And that influence comes from four directions. That's those four blanks around that little C. So that C is your conscience, and there's four things that influence the conscience. The first and most immediate thing that influences the conscience is your peers, the conversation that you're having with the people around you. When you're born, your peers are your family, this is one of the difficulties of becoming a teenager because now your the peers open up to all your friends. This is one of the reasons why it's why it's difficult going away to college because now your family is almost out of that peer conversation and you're in this. But did you you've noticed this too that this your conscience is such a, a tuned in instrument that you can move from one group of peers to another group of peers just you can just walk down the hall and the way that you talk totally changes. The way you talk when you're around your friends versus the way you talk when you're around your children is very diff different. I noticed this when I was a, uh, 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 I don't know, I must have been 14, 15 years old. I had a filthy mouth. And, uh, but it was at school. It wasn't at home. I guarantee you it was not at home. <laughs> and how could I so immediately expunge all of those vocab words as soon as I got through the door? This is the sensitivity of the conscience. It's like a radar. Where am I? What's acceptable? What's right and wrong? What's good and bad? It's a reason why, it's a, there's a reason why when you're around people that you know they agree with you politically, you speak so freely, and when you're around people that disagree with you, you tighten up. Or whatever. We just we gauge the way that we think about what's good and bad because, uh, because our peers affect our conscience and they give us our conscience is able to absorb the, the standard that is around us. Now, what's amazing, what's amazing is that for us to recognize that not only is this pressure exerted on our conscience, but also that we exert this pressure on other people's conscience. I can tell you this from profound experience as a pastor, because whenever I walk around, I'm like a walking conscience for people. <laughs> I mean, I'll just be, I'll, I'll be walking down the street and I'll be walking behind people and they'll be talking and then I'll just pass them and they'll be like, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. It's like, what a, it's like, yeah, you should be. <laughs> But it's an, but you it's it's one thing to we especially have to teach the kids this because for whatever reason we only feel the pressure exerted on our conscience but we can't feel the pressure that we exert on other people's conscience we only feel the pressure in we don't feel the pressure out 
But we should recognize that we have the capacity of influencing people's consciences around us in a good way. Both law and gospel. In other words, both, uh, here's what God wants us to do, and also, Jesus loves you. This is, what, this is the only way to a good conscience anyways, the forgiveness of sins. So, so to recognize that our conscience is influenced by our peers. Second, our conscience is influenced by the culture, which is simply an expansion of the conversation with peers. And this is why art matters. This is why media matters. This is why the poets and the artists and all this, this is why it matters, because all these things are shaping our, our conscience. We were in Italy this summer, and we were looking at a painting, and there's a big, I can't remember what it was, but it's a big deal because it was the first modern nude or something like this. Because what happened was in the ancient world, I mean, if you look at Greek and Roman art, I don't think they even had clothes. Every, I mean, everybody's naked. But then as, as Christian influenced the culture, then people had clothes on in paintings, which was nice. And then at some point during the Enlightenment, then now everyone started taking off their clothes for the paintings. And, but there was this first, like, so this is, that, and that, that matters, actually, the way that, that the human figure and the way that people are portrayed in art and culture, this, this also matters. This matters, why, this matters why what music you listen to matters, what, what you watch on TV, what the cultural conversation is, all of this, it influences the conscience. It tells us what's right and what's wrong. And it can, help, it can be helpful to us or it can be hurtful to us. What's the acceptable norms in art? This is why you can't watch a TV commercial without two dudes holding hands, right? This is, why, this is because the culture matters. It influences the conscience, okay? And, and, and those who want to influence the conscience, they know this. We should, we should recognize it too. It's one of the things that should really push us towards doing Christian art. I mean, we need... We, desperately need more Christian artists, more Christian art, and we need to support the arts more. I was thinking about this, by the way, we have a parish musician. We're good at supporting parish music. Why not have a parish artist who's making visual art? Could you imagine that? We, I, we haven't thought of that. In, but maybe we have to get together as, like a, as a circuit or something and say, How do, let's make art. Yes? They do? Wow. Wow. I thought I thought of it. I don't think it's as good as an idea now that someone else had it first. <laughs> culture. Pierce culture. Third, law. In fact, third, law, fourth, law. But third is man's law and fourth is God's law. Okay? The chief influence on our conscience should be God's law. But oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes God's law is in conflict with our peers, with the culture, with man's law. But if you were looking at this and you're saying, you have a, say you have a troubled conscience because you have a particular sin that you like and you want to dull your conscience, you want to affect your conscience, you think, well, if I can change my peers, if I can change the culture, if I can change the law, if I can change the Bible, and then my conscience can be protected a little bit. And then we say, well, hey, now wait a minute. That looks like that's what's happening. Right? In fact, that's why all these cultural things are so, I mean, why we're talking about the LGBTQ stuff and why we should be talking more about things like divorce and also birth control and some of these cultural issues is because 
all of these things we recognize either affect the conscience for good or for bad, and there's a, there's a didactic function that happens in the law because if something is legal or illegal, it's informing my own conscience about that. Okay? Now, th now knowing that, knowing that those four things affect the conscience, here's what's happened. Is if the conscience of the if the story of our peers or of the culture or of the law, the society in general, if it's saying one thing, it becomes very difficult for us to say something different. It's very difficult to stand apart from all of this conversation. And to stand apart from it is to, is to be... Uh, there's a social pressure to kind of come along, and that, and that becomes a battle for, uh, do I fit in or not? And it becomes, a, it becomes a part of our glory-shame battle. And I think it comes up very clearly in Psalm 4. So I'm going to look at Psalm 4 next. But let me just see if maybe there's one or two quick questions on the four things that affect the conscience or any insights. Or, yeah, Gordon? God's law and man's law. So the fourth one would be God's law. Ten commandments. Peers, culture, man's law, God's law. Yes, sir. Pastor Camp. Well, yep. Yeah, I used to have natural law as a fifth influence, and then I just put it to three, and I put law. But so the, the but yeah, natural law would be in there, and it should be. It probably fits between God's law and man's law. Natural law is God's law that's written on the heart. Yeah. Well. Yeah, in Romans one, so nicely. If you want the best Bible verse on the conscience, you know the word conscience is never in the Old Testament? The word in the Old, the Hebrew would think of it as the heart. It's a portion of the heart. It's one of the functions of the heart. It comes in, it, it's a, it was made very popular by the Stoics. It comes into the New Testament in a number of places. The most clearly is Romans uh, 2, verse 14, where Paul talks about the conscience of the unbeliever either accuses or excuses. In other words, it's either making excuses, it's denying sin, or accusing, it's uh, either guilt, and probably that guilt is on someone else. There's a lot more to talk about with the conscience here, but I want to press on to Psalm 4. If you're all right with that, look at what it says here. Hear me when I call, this is Psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. How long? And now, and then the psalm turns from God to you sons of men. How long, O oh you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Now this is, I think, what the devil is doing to us whenever we want to confess Christ or confess the truth, and, and there's, a, there's a sneer that comes from the world and from the flesh and from the devil against this confession. It should be our glory that we confess that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. After all, I think the Lord didn't make us until day six so that he'd have to tell us what he did before we got here. <laughs> and he's told us, not everybody knows. In fact, it's part of the revealed knowledge of God that this is how he created the world. You can't get to six days scientifically. You got to get there scripturally. I mean, we can get scientifically to the idea that God created the world and that He did it by His power and that He ordered it both, uh, he, he ordered it both physically as, and morally. We can get there. 
But you can't get to the six days unless the Lord tells you. So we'd be like, every, so it should be something like, hey, yeah, God created the world. And we're like, yeah, yeah, but you want to know how he did it? He did it in six days. Ha-ha, I know that. You don't know that, but I know that. Now, I, I mean, I don't want to brag, but God told me how he did it. I mean, he gave me a book, and it says how he did it. Now, I don't want to brag. I mean, this should be our boast. Hey, you know what? God created me. I don't mean to be boastful. It's like a, like when you go to someone's house and they have like a trophy on the mantle and it's like very, and the lights are shining on it. And you walk in and, and you know, they're, they're like looking at it and they look away, look at it, look away. And you're like, okay, I'll bite. What's that? And like, oh, oh, that little thing. Oh, let me put it away. I didn't mean to put out the trophy I won when I won the golfing tournament last week. There, there was only 300 other people in the thing. It's not that big a deal. I just shot a great game. I got two holes in one. Let me just put it away. That's how we should be. Like, oh, 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 that, that's my baptismal certificate. That's no big deal. I mean, I'm just a child of God. I don't want to brag. <laughs> that's our glory that we're created by God that we're redeemed by Jesus that we're filled with the Holy Spirit that we're God's children now that's the text for tomorrow we're, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God and such we are that's our glory and the devil and the world and the flesh wants us to be ashamed of it that's the thing. Can you imagine? The devil wants us to be ashamed that we know amongst all the people of the world that we know how God created the world, that we're supposed to be ashamed of. We're, we're, we know how the... How, it's like... Uh, <laughs> it's like when you're out to dinner with your parents and something else and someone comes up and they ask how old your mom is. <laughs> you know. We know how old the world is. We're, we're insiders in this, and we're supposed to be ashamed of that? How long, oh, how does it, how long, oh, you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? Now, just to recognize that I, I, I think this is where the battle is. I don't think it's a battle of arguments, like, oh, carbon data is so much more reliable than the prophets, or the radio, the radio, the rate of radioactive decay or the speed of light as a constant is more reliable than Moses. I don't think that's actually the thing. I think the, real, I think the real temptation for us is we just don't want to be thought of as fools. That we just don't want to seem like we're ignorant and bumpkin-y fools. But sometimes Jesus calls us to be fools. Sometimes it's going to be okay to just say, I trust the word of God. And if I'm thought of as a, if, if I'm mocked for that or I'm laughed at for that, well, Jesus died. The martyrs were burned. So it's fine. And, and, and this, is the, this is the thing that, you, here the devil wants to turn our glory into shame. Well, we just recognize that God is our glory. So that... So that what's the worst thing that can happen? We get mocked by the world? They, with the people with, how did Paul say it? They've got 
uh, uh, what was the mind? The mind is diminished and the heart is darkened? Fine. Now, this doesn't mean that we, uh, this doesn't mean that we don't have our eyes open when it comes to creation. We should rejoice in exploring the world that God has given us. But we should just know that to be a Christian is always going to be to be an outsider. And I think once we have that conviction, it becomes a lot less intimidating to be mocked. Fine. If I'm a fool, this is what Paul says, if I'm a fool, it's for Christ and for your sake. Uh, there's a verse that often is brought up in this context. It's in Psalm 11, so that's on the back side of your page. Do you see Psalm 11, verse 3? This, I, if, I've, if I have heard this, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard this verse quoted in the context of these great cultural conversations and also with origins, I would have a lot of nickels. But, but it's very misquoted. Look at, look at verse 3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that seems like a despairing sort of verse. Like if the, and, and the idea is, if the foundations of society are destroyed, what are we going to do? We, it's, it's, it, you can't do anything about it. If the foundations are gone, it's all collapsed. But look at the whole context of the psalm. Verse 1, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? Look, the wicked are bending the bow. They make ready the arrow and the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? End quote. How can you say if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How can you tell me to run away like a bird to the mountain? How can you make me afraid of the wicked who have bent the bow, making ready the string, trying to shoot me? How can you make me afraid? In the Lord I put my trust. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyes test the Son of Man. In other words, I can't be, I cannot be, as a Christian, intimidated. If the foundation is destroyed, what do the righteous do? They'll build a new foundation. <laughs> if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Rejoice in the Lord, who is our salvation. If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Trust in Christ and come to the joys of eternal life. There, there's, no, there's nothing to be afraid of in all of these things. R remember the 12 spies that were sent into, into the Holy Land and 10 came back and they said, they're the, the place is full of giants? We, the other two, did they say, no, no, they're not that big? What did, what did Jacob and Caleb do? They said, well, yeah, there's giants, but so what? The Lord fights for us. <laughs> flee like a bird to the mountain. How can you say that to my soul? Trust the Lord. Okay, so the point here is that I think the, the, the strategy, I mean, the, the argument is happening. It happens in the mind. Here's the evidence this way and that. It happens in the heart, but especially happens in the conscience. And we have this, in, we have this inclination to want to wanna fit in to want to be respected, to not want to be thought of as a fool. But the Lord has not authorized us <laughs> to be respected by the world or to seek the world's respect. That's not your goal. Our goal is to trust the Lord and to rejoice in Him. And if the devil is snickering at you, 
then you're probably doing something right. <laughs> you're probably doing something right. Pastor Camp. I, I think you're. I think you are all. I think that's probably the case in a lot of circumstances. That the theistic evolution is that. Hey, I'd like to not be mocked. Now, I think there could be there could be sound and profound arguments for the age of the universe. I, I, I think that those uh, might exist, and they might be to be con to be discussed uh, with rigor and looked at with scientific evidence and all this sort of thing. But I just don't think that that's most of the time what's happening. I think most of the time, it's just the devil would intimidate us by mocking. Now, there's a way that, uh, and I don't know, we've got to be a little bit judicious with this. There's a way that we can kind of snicker back. Oh, you believe that we're all shrapnel? <laughs> now, I don't know how that lines up with Peter's command to give an answer with gentleness and respect. Because I think there's something there, like one of the things required of the Christian is that we have to respect the people that we're arguing against. That, that same honor is not given the other way. We're called to that. So, so in, in a way, I think we probably keep the, uh, the snigger strategy to ourselves. <laughs> but we can use it maybe to protect our own hearts. Well, these, people, these people think that we're just a big explosion. Yeesh. Yeah, Laura? I've been working on this argument. I, don't, I haven't fleshed it out how to make it yet, but it's something like, so, so for the sort of theistic evolution or old earth creationist, is you have two things. You have the way God did make the world and then the way God described how he made the world, which are different. And... And you say, well, why did he describe it the way he did if he made it differently? And then there's a great danger there because the description must be the most beautiful way God can think of describing it. Well, if that's the most beautiful way he can describe it and he could do it, why didn't he do it that way? I gotta, I gotta try to push that out a little bit more. Yes, sir. That's great. Yeah, we honor, we respect, we. Yeah, that's right. But we and we love and remember that we consider each person. It's marvelous. We consider each person created, fallen, redeemed, resurrected. This is how we think of the other. It's great. Okay, uh, I we're at time, which is amazing actually. That we I thought I'd finish early, but. You guys were going a little slow this last session, I want you to know. I would like to do this. I would like to end with a prayer uh, f and then a couple of thanks and announcements and we can uh, make a couple of arrangements for what will then happen next. But let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you have created the entire world, the entire universe. You've placed us here in it. We thank you that you have even after the fall, uh, sustained things so that they would support uh, our lives and our flourishing. We thank you most of all that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
so that he is shared in our own flesh and blood and become our brother and our Savior, that he carried all of our sins and sorrows and all of the sins of all of the world, so that he might be and is now the world's Redeemer. We thank you that, um, that you have delayed his coming in judgment out of your love for the fallen world so that all would come to repentance and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to um, set your church as a light in the midst of a dark world, that the peace and the glory and the goodness of your creation and the distinctions that you've made in the world would be known We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would stand against all the assaults of the devil and the wicked one as we confess that you are our creator and redeemer and sanctifier. We pray that you would give us wisdom and gentleness and respect as we speak of these things to our family and friends and co-workers and neighbors. And we pray that um, the confession of your truth would continue to grow in our midst We give you thanks for the work uh, and attention that you've given to us this day. Pray that it would bear fruit in the cleaning of our consciences and the strengthening of our hearts and minds for your service. For we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Bless we the Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We're going to sing a closing hymn. Hey, thanks for being part of the fun whatnot, the podcast listener. Glad you could be here. The best way to keep in touch is through the website wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday, where you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter, Wednesday Whatnot. Uh, that's got upcoming events, things I'm th- thinking about reading, curious uh, internet videos that I've found and I'm looking into. And when you're on the website, poke around. There's a bunch of other stuff there. You can uh, get all the videos, Bible studies, a bunch of books to download for free and all that kind of stuff as well. So take a look at wolfmuller.co. Keep in touch. God's peace be with you. <laughs>